Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome back to New Books in Latino Studies. I'm David James Gonzalez, the host of today's podcast, and I'm pleased to have Raul Coronado with me to discuss his book, A World Not to Come, A History of Latino Writing and Print Culture, published by Harvard University Press in 2013. Dr. Coronado is Associate Professor of Chicano and Latino Studies at the University of California in Berkeley, where he teaches courses on Latino literary and intellectual history. A World Not to Come is his first book and has received numerous awards, including the Modern Language Association's Prize for First Book in 2013, the American Studies Association's John Hope Franklin Prize in 2014, and the National Association for Chicano, uh, Chicana and Chicano Studies Book Award in 2015. Hello, Raul, and uh, welcome to New Books in Latino Studies. Hi, David James. Uh, thanks for having me. Well, it's, it's, again, it's a pleasure to have you on. I'm excited to, to get to your book. Uh, I was wondering if you could begin our discussion today by just telling us a little bit about, uh, you know, your own background and how you eventually came to write the book. Yeah, um, well, I'm from um, Texas, so it's no surprise that the book is about Texas. Um, I grew up in Dallas, and my father is an immigrant from Mexico. And um, in many ways, this book is um, – I, I wrote this book as a way to understand um, some of my experiences from my childhood. We would spend like summers and holidays in Mexico and we would drive like, what was it? 12, 14 hour drive from Dallas to Matehuala, San Luis Potosí. And my dad's from this small town where, you know, they don't have any water and they've only had, they've had electricity maybe for about the last 15 years or so. And I just remember as a child, just being there and loving being around my family there, playing outside with my cousins at night under the moon, and then always hating going back to Texas, always hating going back to Texas. There was something beautiful about the desert and the nature and the serenity there. And so I, I, I guess it was, it was trying to make sense of that, that, that emotional memory for me that I was trying to try to always understand that sense of community that I really loved that um, that experience there. So, I mean, that's, I would say that that's maybe the sort of uh, existential or emotional kind of kernel of like why, what I wanted to do in this, in this book. Um, but it, it, the book really started when I was in graduate school or even before that, when I was an undergraduate, but in graduate school, um, I was really interested in wanting to write a history of Latino sexuality, um, sort of along the lines of Michel Foucault. I wanted to understand, um, I wanted to understand the, the conditions of possibility that allowed for gay and lesbian Latinos to emerge in the 1980s in the public sphere, to be able to describe themselves as gay and Latino and to print and publish texts under that um, category. Um, and so I wanted to like look back and see what allowed, what were the conditions that allowed them to do that. And at that time in the 1990s when I was doing my work, a lot of the discussion, and even to this day very much in Latino studies, um, is framed around the, the argument that Latinos and specifically Chicanos are post-colonial or are going through a decolonization process. Right. And so a lot of that, a lot of that framework was coming up. And so I thought, well, in order for me to understand this question of sexuality and Chicanos and racialization and 
and decolonization, I really need to know what this process was like. And so uh, this process of decolonization. Um, but before decolonization, actually not just decolonization, but I thought, well, if we're going through decolonization, we really should know how we were colonized. Mm-hmm. Like if we're going to undo it, we really need to know what that the, the, the psychological processes of colonization, what that was all like. And I thought, well, if I want to do that, I need to look at the 19th century because surely this is where, where it all begins with the U.S.-Mexico War of 1846 and 48. Right. Um, and so I thought, let me turn to the 19th century and, uh, and I'm going to kill two birds uh, with one stone here. I'm in graduate school and thinking I need to get a job. Right. And so I'm thinking I'll go to the 19th century. And this is also the moment of a project called um, the Recovering the U.S. Hispanic Literary Heritage Project that started in the 1990s here. And they were republishing long lost novels from the 19th century and, and the early 20th century. But no one had focused on Texas. So I thought, OK, I'll go to Texas. I'll do literary history. I'll focus on these long lost novels or, or, or text. I'll find something written by a queer, or like mm-hmm. queer and, and I will write about the U.S. Mexico War, and I'll republish that novel. And as a graduate student, I will get a job, and that's what I was most worried about. So I spent a couple of years doing research, um, doing research, and I became incredibly depressed after doing those two years of archival research. I had like found at least two filing cabinets full of documents, but no novels. No poetry, no um, collections of short stories or drama, nothing that we would describe as literary today. Right. And so after those years, I went to my professor and I said, you know, I, I, I'm not going to be broke to finish. I don't know what I'm going to do. I'm depressed. And he said, well, uh, what did you find? He's like, well, they wrote all these other things, but they didn't write anything that I wanted. And so he had the really, you know, really great question. He's like, well, not question, but he's like, well, maybe you should change your question. It shouldn't be. Why didn't they write literature, but why did they write what they wrote? Right. And so this book is very much about that. It's not about the, the, the literature as we describe it, but it's trying to understand why they wrote what they wrote, why they were so invested in those ideas. Um, of course, as things turn out, I didn't find any queers in the archive. And so the book has, um, um, is not a lot at all about um, sexuality, but I would, I'd like to think that this is sort of maybe – if I can be ambitious, think about this as sort of a precursor, like a stepping stone to thinking about sexuality as it unfolds later on um, in, in, in next projects. Um, and so the, 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 third, the, the first point that I had brought up about decolonization, that was probably one of the most um, frustrating things for me when I was a graduate student and maybe even to this day really in Latino studies. So much of the conversation is about how we are post-colonial right. or decolonial. But no one, there's very little work that examines the nuances and the complex aspects of the colonization process. It's usually just really rushed over. And so the book um, doesn't really, instead of looking at colonization, because colonization in many ways looks at people and what's happened to them. What I wanted to do in my book is I wanted to look at what they wrote and I wanted to look at why they wrote. And I wanted to look at it at the moment. I wanted to look at their dreams and their aspirations, right, before before the process of colonization had, had happened, right, um, and see what happens when colonization begins to unfold. So in that sense, the book had to go before the U.S.-Mexico War, and so the book goes all the way back to the late 18th century 
And I'm trying, I, what I really wanted to do was to understand the world that they wanted to create, the world that they inhabited, a world that's not perfect at all, um, that has its own um, forms of oppression for sure, but it's a world that we do not know anything about. And so I wanted to, the one thing that I love about literary history is that it focuses, it forces us to pay close, careful attention to language, syntax, imagery. Um, and so I try to bridge that with intellectual history, with really wanting to understand the development of these ideas in, in, in a narrative history and in, mm-hmm. in, in terms of change over time. So that's what I try to do in this book, try to do all that. And that's maybe why the book ended up being so long. <laughs> <laughs> well, it certainly is a big book, uh, but it is a, uh, and and it reads as you mentioned very much like a a history, but it is very inter- interdisciplinary in the in the fact that you um, were mentioning. You know, there's, um, you know, political philosophy that you you know d- discuss throughout here. I mean, uh, literary criticism, and you go through these documents that are covered in, in a lot of detail. You know, actually examining the the particular use of language and. Um, so I wanted to approach, you know, your de- or discuss your description of what this book is, and, and you describe it as a discursive history um, and as a, an historical archaeological account of an alternative West. Can, uh, so in essence, right, a a an, an alternative history of how the Spanish Americas became modern in a way, right? Uh, can you expand on that a bit? Right. I mean, I, I think when I was writing the book, I was not tenured, and I was in an English department. I was at the University of Chicago. Um, and so I was writing the book, thinking about my larger audience, but then also thinking about needing to get tenure within a specific discipline of English. I would say that the book um, is very much working within, and, I, and I, don't, I don't think it says it explicitly, but more within the lines of intellectual history. Mm-hmm. So, And so what I'm really interested in, and it's and actually maybe within Within the U.S., it would fit in within intellectual history and the history of the book or the history of print culture. So in that sense, what I'm more interested in is um, I'm interested in ideas and how they circulate and how and how these ideas can be sort of um, signs for how what people feel, what they imagine. And so what I've always gravitated towards in terms of history is how people feel, what they what what how they're moved, why they do things. Um, how those emotions develop over time in language specifically, and and but I'm also a materialist. Um, so so I even though these ideas might be intellectual history might sound quite abstract and not grounded. Um, the great thing about working in this period before um, the really the telegraph or telephones or the internet for sure or radio or television is that the only way ideas can circulate in this moment is either through oral, uh, through oral exchange between people um, or something that's printed or drawn. Um, and so for me, the evidence that I use are printed documents or handwritten documents. So the book is very much based on that archive of printed materials or written documents and how these documents then create an atmosphere or uh, a sense of community and, and, and people gravitate towards some, and you can tell when they gravitate towards some. For example, the one document that I write about, uh, a broadsheet, for example, this broadsheet we know is printed in the, on the Texas-Louisiana border, um, um, and um, it's printed in, in May 1812. 
and it's and we know it circulates. We have evidence that it circulates, and we have evidence that the Spanish uh, commanders do not want it to circulate. And then we have evidence that in August of that same year, there's a revolution, right? <laughs> so it's and so it's it's for me, it's it's wanting to understand why what moved people, like what was it about that language in that in those documents that really affected people and, and had them want to think uh, to, change, to change for the world. Now, the larger con- the question that you asked me was about an alternative West. Um, and so in, in this sense, then what I'm really looking at, if the language of this, the language of this moment of early of late 18th and early 19th century studies in the, in Atlantic studies, for example, the, this is a, a period that is known as, you know, um, uh, the, the wars of independence and, right. and the revolutions, right? And so the, the larger frameworks that we have here are, you know, the, the U.S. Revolution, the American uh, Revolution, the War of Independence, the French Revolution, the, the wars of independence in Latin America. Now, the framework for the, Lat- the wars of independence in Latin America had long been, um, in terms of within intellectual history, the question had been, who were they most influenced by? Right. Were they influenced mm-hmm. more by the French or were they influenced more by the Americans in terms of intellectual history? Exactly. In the last 20 years, there's been a really a lot of wonderful work coming out of Spain and France and Latin America that asked the amazing question. Why don't we look at what these people in Latin America were studying and reading amongst themselves as well? And so that's what I would say that my book is also a part of. Of what it, it draws on that on that great amount of secondary literature that's come out from Spain, France, and Latin America that looks at the ideas that were circulating in Latin America, and those ideas have so much more to do with Catholic political philosophy. What I describe as Catholic political philosophy within the field, it would be described as late scholasticism. Mm-hmm. Um, but these Catholic political philosophers are not studied; they're not part of what we would now today think about the development of concepts of freedom or liberalism or sovereignty or Republican nation states, right? right? The theories that we are familiar with when we think of Locke or Rousseau, for example, or Jefferson, those come from what we would describe as the North Atlantic or Protestant North Atlantic. And so when I say the West, then I'm talking about specifically ideas that come from uh, a part of the West that has been marginalized. That is, the Catholic southern part of the West, the, that is a, the Spanish Americas and the and Catholic Europe. Right. So if this, you know, um, influence of the, you know, uh, Catholic political philosophers in itself has been uh, marginalized, you also point to uh, Texas itself, right? How uh, its own history in, um, in this particular era, uh, you know, of, Rebellions of, of revolution, etc., uh, independence that are typically right uh, have come to define right this term and this shift to uh, the modern era has been left out of this discussion. So, can you uh, speak a bit to um, why that is? Or, or you, you touched about that at the beginning a, a bit of you know how the Texas the, the history of Texas in this process has been alighted in ways. Um, so, why do you think that is, and, and how does your book respond to that? Yeah, geez, that's a really loaded question. I mean, Texas is, <laughs> I'm from Texas, and I, 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 I failed my exam in eighth grade where I, I um, did not memorize a state song, uh, and I've done my best to forget the Alamo. Um, <laughs> um, uh, uh, and, and, I mean, so I, I would say we know today that that sort of dominant history of Texas, that democracy in Texas begins with the Alamo and the arrival of Anglo-Americans, 
um, and the establishment of the Texas Republic is the dominant history that we know today. Um, I, I wanted to look at um, what the Mexicans in Texas, what how they engage with these ideas. But I wanted to do it not um, not begin with the moment when Anglo Americans arrived, because I thought, well, is that true? Is it true that that uh, Mexicans in Texas only begin to think about these ideas of alternative forms of government besides monarchical rule only when Anglo Americans arrive? And if you look at the history, that's clearly not the case. The first war of independence in 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 uh, in, in in New Spain is fought in Texas in um, 1812. It begins in, uh, uh, well, before that, for sure, but the first war of independence that wants to declare Mexico as a republic, as an independent republic with a democratic form of government, clearly established one um, with a democratic form of government, is one that is announced in Texas. And so mm-hmm. this is other historians have, have looked at. You can look at the histori- the um, um, eminent historian from Mexico, Virginia, uh, who, who has written about San Antonio and this war as well. Um, but this history of wars of independence beginning in Texas in 1812 is not part of our dominant history of Texas, right? It's not part of the dominant history at all. And, and, and when you look at that history, um, it's, it's devastating. Um, you see how these people, these communities really fought for an alternative way of imagining their community, um, that was in formation. They were, these ideas were coming and going and they wanted something different than monarchical rule. Um, the letter, the letters and language and, uh, that circulates in these documents is incredibly moving. Also about the emergent nationalism that is, uh, that is used there. And so you have, I do close readings, for example, of words that, that are incredibly powerful even to this day that don't quite translate into English. Uh, words like patria, for example. Mm-hmm. They're really a word. For patria, I don't know. I mean, well, how would you translate patria into English? You know, it's, I mean, yeah, I think, country, mother, fatherland. Right. Uh, fatherland would be the closest, but doesn't quite capture, even to this day, really, uh, uh, what patria means uh, in Spanish when you hear it. It's different from nación, and I think patria holds at your heartstrings much more than nación does when you do it for the patria. It's for the fatherland. Right. And these words are being used in this period in the early 19th century in Texas. But historians have not looked at that. I mean, I think there's only really um, only a few, only one historian who has really looked at that war in in uh, in detail, Catherine Garrett, and that's from her book um, Green Flag Over Texas. It's from the 19 what was it 30s or 20s. Mm. Um, some people, people, other historians have written about this moment, you know, maybe in passing or over a couple pa- uh, paragraphs, but a sustained book that looks at these at this this rupture, and it really is a rupture. Because and it's a series of complicated wars and battles that unfold in San Antonio and on the Louisiana Texas border, um, but very few people have looked at this, and it's not part of the dominant history that we know of Texas. Um, now, if we, so so if we want to know about the unfolding of these ideas uh, that are different than monarchical rule of of the emergence of concepts of democracy of republican rule. Uh, and really, the, the 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 incipient language of rights, the rights of individuals. Right. We need to look at this moment, but but to maybe just back up before you know, it's not just rights of individuals. The language in Catholic political philosophy is the the right. It emphasizes the rights of the people right. of the mm-hmm. pueblo, 
and, and, and that's another concept that doesn't translate into English, the concept of the pueblo. Pueblo uh, can be translated, I mean, and it's also a word that resonates to this day. You go to rallies and, uh, 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 with Latinos here in the U.S. and you hear, you know, el, el pueblo unido jamás será vencido. The people united will never be divided. But pueblo is not quite people. And so there is a lot mm -hmm. of work in philosophy in that moment that really is about the rights of the pueblo versus the rights of the individual. Um, and there's a nuanced difference there that allows for a much more capacious way of thinking about community and belonging and how people come together uh, to think about the social contract. So, um, so, so it's important to look at these documents from that moment um, and to see the alternative sorts of ideas that were, that were in circulation then and that continued, I would argue, continued to circulate in, in Spanish speaking, especially Spanish speaking, but in Latino communities to the same. Gotcha. As you're describing that, you, you point out that the the moment of rupture, which is where the the book um, begins essentially, uh, was that you know occurs in 1808 with uh, Napoleon's invasion, right? Uh, right? You know of Spain and um, deposing of uh, the Spanish monarch uh, Fernando the Seventh, right? Um, and but yet, it, while you you explain in early on in the book that this is a kind of a chronological story, it's not linear, and and you describe your your narrative strategy more as a, a spiral narrative, um, and two characters essentially figure very prominently, at least in the in the first uh, number of chapters, six chapters, I believe, of the book, and and those are the um, Gutierrez uh, de Lara brothers, right, Jose Antonio and Bernardo. Can maybe picking up with with just, um, I mean, I'll give you free reign on how you want to approach this, but uh, can you just discuss their role in, uh, you know, this history and this narrative that, that you're telling? It's Again, it's a history, essentially, of Latino writing and print culture is, is the main M, you know, aim to tell the story, particularly centered in Texas, yet, um, you know, you, 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 you traverse the Atlantic at a number of points, right? So how is it that these two characters allow you to tell, which is really a, a vast and sweeping, you know, narrative. I mean, it's essentially half a century, but, you know, the expanse of the geography you cover, right, in order to, you know, track down and, and, and discuss the historical etymology, if you will, of, of certain philosophical ideas and, and concepts, um, you know, are really kind of based initially in these two characters. So they, they seem to really root the first, you know, I don't know, was it two-thirds of the book or so uh, for you. Can you discuss a bit, uh, you know, both Jose Antonio and Bernardo? Right. I mean, I would say um, so. So maybe the, to begin with, what you said in terms of the the, the way I described the, the narrative, the history in the introduction as a spiral narrative. Um, I, I did that um, because in order for me to understand um, to, to to create the, the story I wanted um, to write, the history I wanted to write, and understand these documents. So ultimately, so if we go back to what I said before. What I'm ultimately interested in is how these communities imagine themselves, how they uh, share ideas with one another. And the great thing to be able to do that for this moment is to do that through the history of the printing press and through the history of manuscripts of writing. <coughs> so I began the project then by looking: okay, when does the history, when does the printing press arrive? Why does it arrive? 
and what is printed on those on those printing press because a printing press then is ostensibly a way to be able to disseminate ideas to community beyond those that you can see readily right you can share those documents and they travel across space much more faster than than uh, than 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 people can and you could or, or and you can share ideas in a much more sustained kind of way so ultimately it's history of those documents but those documents for me are a sign for how this community comes together right, right. So it's not just completely abstract right <laughs> then the question becomes, well, who brings a printing press and why do they do that? The person who brings that first printing press or has it brought to uh, close to Texas um, is um, um, Bernardo Gutierrez de Lara. Um, he's from South Texas, from uh, um, the, the, the current Texas-Mexico border, and he um, meets Hidalgo uh, and is deputized to go to the north right before Hidalgo is captured. Um, once Hidalgo is captured, all the revolutionaries in northern Mexico are being captured. It's uh, the, the revolution is being suppressed. But he manages to escape, and he goes north. He makes his way north um, along the Camino Real, um, which parallels the Gulf of Mexico, um, and makes his way to uh, Nacogdoches and is ambushed there. He was taken with him um, a load of <clears throat> a chest of documents verifying his appointment and uh, bullion. He was taking gold and silver with him to be able to pay his way to get to Washington, D.C., where he wanted to get support from the U.S. for the War of Independence. Um, and so that's the material aspect, right? right? So I'm looking at this one person and how he goes over there. And he goes there and he comes back and he comes back with the printing press. Right. He makes, mm-hmm. makes his way back through New Orleans, goes back up to, uh, to, Nac- uh, to Natchitoches, which is in Louisiana, sets up a printing press there. And this is another thing. The history of the printing press is also seen as a history of liberalism, right? Once a printing press arrives, like, oh, it's amazing, it's beautiful. But in the history of the printing press in Texas, this printing press has been ignored. You know, it's 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 kind of fascinating the way the not so um, subtle racialization, even in the historiography itself, mm-hmm. that ignores this printing press. So he brings this printing press and has printed on it um, uh, these broadsheets, right? He writes in his journal. He's like, I went to the printing. Pr- uh, I, I saw. I went to the house and I saw printed up uh, the the document, and he was amazed by it, like that he was that this is being printed. So, so, so in a way, the book begins with him. Um, but in order to understand the language in that document, and here I'm thinking about you know, in in um, in my book. Um, um, the, the broadsheet that I look at, um, this is the first broadsheet, and I don't know if we can look at a specific page, it's on page 216. This is the first document, one of the first documents that I uncovered, and it baffled me. I could not, for the life of me, try to figure out what it was. It's only two, it's a double-sided one, it's on 216. The right. print is small, I don't know if you can make it out, but mm-hmm. I, in other pages you can see the language. This is the first document that I saw, and this is what he had printed up. This is what he saw. He, uh, uh, Bernardo Gutierrez Lara had printed up, and then and then we can corroborate the Spanish commander's document and they write to Spanish governor. Oh, um, and and here I'm, I'm summarizing this infidel. I think is the way they describe him. Is printing these documents and he's having them uh, sent in, and he's seducing our people. He's seducing our communities. The language is all about seduction. He right. seduces these documents, and it's not him. It's actually these documents are seducing our people. 
these documents are seducing. So it's really interesting the way the Spanish commanders describe this language, these, these documents. They see the documents as having power and agency. They're the ones that are seducing people right. to do these things. Right. So, right. But, so and I'm, I'm, I'm saying this to set this up because in order for me to figure out this language in this document, it uses all these various technical kinds of terms that I didn't understand myself. So I had to figure out how to decode this. So one of the great things about, you know, being an assistant professor when I was at the University of Chicago in English, I was working on a Saturday night in my office on campus along with all the other junior faculty, and we took a break. And, you know, I was having a conversation there with some other um, uh, uh, colleagues who work in, you know, in the Renaissance, British Renaissance. And I was telling them about this document. I was like, I don't know how to decode this. He's using language about rights and the rights about different types of rights. And my friend who works in political philosophy but in British Renaissance said, oh, you should look at Quentin Skinner's The Foundation's Modern Political Thought. That might be helpful. Maybe he'll – because he has a section in there. The second uh, uh, section of that book is all about Catholic political philosophy. Mm -hmm. And it was like poof. It was like finding the decoder in like in a cereal box. And I went back to this thing and I was like – it, another world it, it was like literally like being i felt like i was indiana jones mm-hmm. and i covered something another world that i i was able to get to another layer of meaning that i had not had act available to me before right. but in order to do that as i said before i had to go to catholic political philosophy and then i had to read about um the the protestant reformation and the catholic reformation which is where these ideas come from so it, when i say that i it's spiral i mean then that for me to understand this document that was printed it up in 1812, I had to go back a couple centuries and re- go back and read about what had happened a couple centuries earlier because the, the late scholastic philosopher Francisco Suarez, who was very much active in, in Spain and writing and was one of the key figures of the Catholic Reformation, his documents then become the foundation of university curriculum. And so this is his ideas then are what is being studied in universities in Spain and Spanish America. And these are the ideas that are circulating amongst these revolutionaries. So for me to go back, for me to understand this document from 1812, then I had then to go back and understand the larger web of other documents that are related. So this is a document that was written not by as I know there you can see printed mm-hmm. at the bottom on page 216 the initials J-A-T right. and that's Jose Juarez de Toledo he was a Cuban intellectual and political revolutionary and so this meant then as a mater- being a materialist and by materialist meaning I want to ground my ideas in something I needed to know more about this guy J-A-T right. so I looked so as it turns out he was very prolific and publishes in Philadelphia all these right. other documents right. That's what. So when you say it goes across from Texas to these other across the Atlantic, it does that. But I would argue that it does so in a very meticulous, materialist way. That is, mm-hmm. I make the connections that says this document takes me to Philadelphia, and this document also has, by the way, the imprint of Philadelphia on it as well. Right. So this means then that these ideas that are circulating in Texas, they're circulating in Texas, but they're part of a much larger web that exactly. takes us to Philadelphia and then also takes us to Spain and takes us to the Catholic political philosophy. Mm-hmm. So that's what I mean that when I say spiral, I say for us today to understand this world, we need to know something about Catholic political philosophy, which is not at all part of our um, – other than specialist really – it's not part of our dominant way of understanding or con- conceiving the world. We understand 
when people mention Locke, Rousseau, or Jefferson, we know we can peg them and know what world they, they, they're a part of. But when you mention Francisco Suarez or Jose Alvarez de Toledo, we're, we, don't, we don't have a framework to be able to place them on. And so my book then wanted to create the larger scaffolding of this alternative West, right? Mm-hmm. Not an alternative West that is pure and wholesome compared to the, the Protestant. It has its own baggage, most definitely. But it's a world of ideas that we don't know that has shaped Latinos as well. Right. Right. Yeah. And let's stick out with uh, this one document. Because probably it's a good example, I think, to cover so much of what, what the book uh, you know, uh, gets at. Um, so at this, this initial, um, and I, I can't remember whether you refer to it as a, a proclamation or a declaration that is written by Bernardo, right? And it's initially published in Philadelphia. And then he brings it as essentially he smuggles it, right? And this press uh, into... Um, now, is it, it's been into the Texas, Louisiana area, right? Where he right. starts reproducing it and disseminating it. Now, so the, the, the press becomes this way that where these communities that you're, you're, you're discussing start to share these ideas again, and they're, they're formed. These ideas are formed out of this really kind of, uh, you know, transatlantic, um, uh, Hispanophone community that, that Bernardo finds, right? In, in New England and his travels throughout, um, you know, the, what then is the United States and, um, and all this after again that initial rupture and rebellion by Miguel Hidalgo. My point is here that let's get to the point of the um, how the communities start imagining themselves, right? And in this document, he opens up uh, after you know essentially writing the document in the in the name of uh, Jesus, Mary, and, and uh, Joseph, right? Jesus, Maria, y Jose. He addresses his readers as Mexicanos, right? And so that starts to get at this this point that you're making about you know the imagined community and how they are beginning to form, uh, or this this document illustrates right the formation of identity as Mexicanos. What does this one document say, uh, particularly about that usage? You know, I think you you point out that it is the first time, or maybe the first time that 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 term Mexicanos is used to address right a, a collective group of people. Right. So first of all, so Bernardo Gutierrez Lara did not author this. Oh, okay. It's, gotcha. it's authored by Jose Alvarez de Toledo. Oh, okay. Okay. Gotcha. Right. So, so, and 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 their own history between Potem is a, is a really fascinating one. I mean, they were uh, allies, and then Jose Alvarez de Toledo basically uh, betrays a revolution in, in the end. Right. And exactly. uh-huh. de Lara. So, uh, so there's a tension even there, even in the in the broadside where Bernardo Gutierrez writes, signs it, right. but Jose Toledo is the one who authored it. Uh, okay, I got that. Gotcha. Was the author. Gutierrez Alara is the one who leads the revolution. He's the one who supports and uh, travels all the way to D.C. Uh, it's mm-hmm. probably the first um, Spanish-Americans to travel uh, from Louisiana by land across. Um, uh, he kept a diary with him, a, a journal that he wrote in, uh, a fascinating one. So that's what I write about in the, in the first one. Um, I, I, I guess I... I I would say that um, this is what historians have said that this is probably one of the first times that we see the word Mexicanos used in this way. Prior to this moment, Mexicanos would have uh, could have rep- could have meant a couple of things. It could have meant the people who lived in Mexico City, or it could have referred to the indigenous people of the of Mexico City, the valley, the uh, the indigenous people from there. 
Um, and so this is really quite astounding. In a way, it's calling the birth of Mexicanos, calling into birth of these people that are, can see themselves as this. And so the, 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 the translation then is, the way I translate it is, Mexicanos come as a time appointed by Providence to shake off the barbarous and offensive yoke with which for the space of almost 300 years, the most insolent despotism has ignominiously oppressed you. And so what's really interesting about that then is what he's saying is he's calling for Mexicanos to break off this yoke, right, that they has oppressed them for 300 years. What that implies then, what I do a reading of that, that, that that implies then is that maybe there was a moment where they were free before that, right? If, 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 if it's been there for 300 years, then what happens before 300 years? Were they free then? And so that's what this document implies. And it's in a way kind of resonates a bit. Um, and this is where I actually took also my own inspiration um, for, for, for thinking about a spiral narrative is that when, me, when Mexicanos, not just Mexicanos, but really throughout the revolutionary period, other, other historians have also documented this, um, um, when people are talking about revolution in this moment, in many ways, they're thinking about revolution in the very traditional way of thinking of revolution, of going around, right? Mm-hmm. Of going, going back. Mm-hmm. And any of them, it is about going back to a past that was a bit more perfect, right? right? That was a bit better. A moment before all these other, um, uh, restraints were placed on them. And for many of them, what we know for now, for now, so, I mean, I work within the field of literary and intellectual history, but what we know from political, social, economic history of Latin America, we know that the Bourbon reforms were, right. were a definite reason for economic, uh, uh, um, 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 uh, lack of economic development and political uh, frustration amongst the Creoles in Latin America. We know that the Bourbon reforms did that. And those reforms were, uh, were put in place in the 18th century. So this document is suggesting that there's a moment before when they can go back that will be more free. And so then the rest of the land, so each of the paragraphs that follow get a little bit more complex in ideas. And so what we see then as that's unfolding is that he is offering a language of political community that is one of rights that are that are arrested not in the king. The king does not have. So the question becomes this: Once Napoleon invades Spain and and deposes a king, it's 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 shock throughout the Hispanic monarch, monarchical world. There is no king. So if there is no king, some of the that you imagine the great not just political but existential angst that people felt. The king was equated also with related to uh, uh, Catholicism. So what if there's no king, what about God? Right. What will happen then? Who, where will our political existential authority come from? So this document does a really beautiful way of saying our authority, our political authority at least, resides within us. God gave us the people power. And it's not God gave certain people or individuals. He didn't say he doesn't, the document does not say we are each individually have sovereignty. He says we as a community have power and our power. We have the right to be able to decide as a community. Now, how it's only a broad broadsheet, so he can't mm-hmm. go into about how that's going to actually play out. But it's really moving and it's a document that would have been read out loud. Um, right. So yes. the rates are very, very low. And so historians have often pointed to that as a way of maybe – denigrating the ideas out or the communities from this period, right? Like, well, um, and, and it's actually part of the black legend, but also something that a Spanish priest, um, uh, uh, a priest from, um, 
missionary um, who traveled through Texas, uh, Morphy, who uh, promulgated this idea that the the the, the Spaniard, Spanish uh, Americans in Texas were backwards, intellectually backwards. Um, and so this idea of the literacy being low, um, it was definitely low. But as we know within literary history and oral history, um, it only takes one person to be able to read out loud right. for people to be able to hear those ideas. And so we can imagine people reading this document out loud. Right. And at least that, but the visual layout itself, that's what I also interpret of the document. You see the crosses at the top, and all, all, even if you're illiterate or even semi-illiterate, you would see Jesus, Maria, y Jose or recognize those words and see that already this is a document that is religious, right. that, that, mm-hmm. that is powerful. And so in that sense, and this the language that is used here is an existential, political, religious language, right? It's one that does morph all of that. It morphs between all, all, all those three. I think maybe I'll, I'll leave it there because I'm, I'm trying to remember what your original question was. Well, no, that's getting to it. it, it it's, it's a formulation of, you know, addressing what, what, what uh, this document, one of the things that it, that it alludes to, right, is what um, Bernardo is, uh, and others like him are, are trying to think about, right, is if the monarchy is no longer, right, uh, you know, the the basis of authority, right, what's going to replace that? And and you use this to discuss how he's beginning to imagine uh, something that we now call, you know, you know, the nation, uh, right, this new formation of a body politic, right? And so there's right. addressing and, you know, you, you, there are different phrases, collective terms that are used. This document particularly is one that's illustrative of the use of the term Mexicanos, right? Um, yeah. But it shows this. This trajectory and, and 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 evolution, if you will, right of of how these writers, how these intellectuals, um, um, particularly struggling, you know, with what comes next, right, in regards to political authority, how they organize society, etc., are trying to imagine who their audience is, right? Uh, right, right, right. No, and so I, and I would also argue so. Um, the interesting thing is that Toledo is Cuban, right? And so he writes this and it's Mexicanos. Right. So one of the things that I realized in writing this book is that, you know, the, the political theory of belonging within the, the Catholic world, um, and I provide a kind of a schematic kind of uh, um, image of that on page 225. Um, and it's, it's, it's sort of, it's a theory, Francisco Suarez's theory of the system of laws, of how right. laws sovereignty emerges and develops and it's in concentric circles Mm -hmm. and many ways the ways of imagining belonging in the hispanic world and when i say hispanic i mean the hispanic monarchical world right that comprises spain and the americas and the philippines as well is also concentric right you think about um the the ways of imagining a community and maybe some of these terms actually resonate to the present today so people would have identified most immediately with their particular region their local community and then to their local uh, to the region what even to this day people describe as a patria chica right so you have the patria and then you have the patria chica so even to this day you have the sense of patria that is concentric, that you have a local sense of community and responsibility and commu- belonging to that local place. But you can also belong to something much bigger. And so you can think about that uh, similarly here. So you have the patria chica, then you have the patria. Many people uh, had a sense of belonging to the, the kingdom of, of New Spain and then to the Americas and then to the Hispanic world and then to the larger Catholic Christian world. So I would argue that uh, and I, I would argue, following other historians, that the sense of belonging that is in flux in this moment, when you can have people like Bolivar uh, uh, arguing and Martí arguing for the Americas, mm-hmm. any sense of contradiction 
then also arguing for their own local nation base of imagining community is still one that's very much alive today. And when you think about, um, you know, Latin America, you know, Latinoamericanos, right? There is a sense of belonging, perhaps, uh, amongst them when they travel abroad. Mm-hmm. But they're traveling within within Latin America. There's the, the, the nationalisms emerge. Right. But then within Mexico, you might have your own regional identities of Norteño, mm-hmm. right? Or, 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 or what have you. So this document also does that. So it makes reference to Isleños, so people from the Carib- Spanish Caribbean. The document itself, uh, it begins with Mexicanos. It makes reference to Americanos. So it's, I wouldn't say that's a contradiction, but it's a play, a rhetorical play between those different terms to be able to tug at people's heartstrings, that, that to, to, um, to allow them to see that they belong to these various ways of community, but that they all fit within one another as well. Gotcha. Right. And I would say that that fits – actually, this is an argument that I made in other places and to make it another book that we might think about this for Latinos today and, our, and today in the United States. We all come from various national origins, right, whether it be Mexicanos, Puerto Ricanos, Cubanos, Americanos, um, Centroamericanos, what have you. But maybe what's happening here today – our contemporary moment of Latinos or Latino, uh, Latino, Latino, Latinx communities is this new way of imagining us belonging to one another while we also see the rich complexity. Gotcha. Now what, um, so this again, as I mentioned, the, the kind of first six chapters are focusing primarily on, you know, the moment in which this rebellion and, and revolution, uh, sweep into, um, uh, you know, the Spanish Americas, you know, particularly this in this area, you know, in what is now modern day Mexico and, and Texas. Uh, the book then, you know, after going through this and, and these ideas, it then jumps forward, not jumps forward. I mean, it, this is a consistent narrative, but we end up sort of then in post, um, revolutionary po- or post independence Texas and Mexico. Uh, and you switch from where, this earlier story is mostly about you know these proclamations and, and declarations, et cetera, for um, what eventually becomes the independence movement. Um, but then, you know, again, post-independence, we're looking primarily at newspapers and a development of Latino newspapers in Texas. Uh, so how does that then connect to and, and carry on this, this narrative history of how Latinos are seeing themselves uh, in you know, Texas and, and throughout the Spanish Americas? Right. I mean, I think um, so. Again, I, I look at the newspapers because what I'm most interested in is how the the, the ideas and how they circulate. Not just um, personal documents. Like I, I'm not. I was not as interested in personal, like private writings. I was interested right. in that would circulate out to other other communities. And so for me, one of these, um, wh- one of the things that that drew me the most was this history written by Jose Antonio Navarro from 1853 and 1857. Mm-hmm. And so this is the first, this is the first real um, published history, really. It's a published history of Texas Mexicans. And what's interesting here is that also in California, we have histories that are being published then also at that time. Um, what we know about history, the emergence of history, is that um, what he writes in this history, at least, is is a history of this Texas Mexican community. And, and, and that history... It's called, it's written in two different parts in 1853 and then in 1857. And so much of that history, when you read that narrative, and it's been republished, so it's available to, to readers um, uh, as well. You can get it on Amazon. Um, 
what, what's really telling about that story that Navarro tells that is that it's a history of pain and suffering and this how much suffering this community has felt. Gotcha. And, gotcha. And, and this community, this printed document is wanting to address that suffering and how they suffer. And so what's interesting here is that in 1853 and 1857, right, this is almost almost a, a decade after the U.S.-Mexico War, and already in Texas um, we see a, an incredible amount of racial violence. The, the CART War, for example, which completely um, uh, eviscerates the Texas-Mexican um, um, uh, Cartman, that is uh, the industry that is of, of moving goods from the coast into central Texas, had all had much of it had been owned by Texas Mexicans. There are wars where people are lynched, where their their goods are stolen, their mules are stolen, um, and and there's nothing that they can do. They tr- try to turn to the law, but nothing is done. Anglo Americans are completely systemically um, uh, dispossessing elite Texas Mexicans of their goods. Um, and so that's a classic kind of definition of, of colonization, right? Where the law does not hold and, and, and they will end up losing their belongings. So in 1853 and 1857, Navarro is writing this history and, and he's trying to find a way to get people to imagine themselves as belonging to this new country, to Texas. Mm-hmm. It's a really difficult place to be in. Mm-hmm. To, that is to transfer your emotions, right? If, if nationalism is about loving your country, then how do you transfer your love from Mexico to Texas, right? And so the story, had, it's a really rhetorically powerful and nuanced document. So when he talks about Texas, about Mexico, he talks about Mexico using the word patria. He says patria, 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 referring to Mexico. But the patria of Mexico has always ignored the needs of Texas Mexicans. Mm-hmm. It's, 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 it's like a... a a parent who has abandoned their children. And that's the the emotion that comes through. And that's a reading that I do in this document. And again, that's with Anglo-Americans, for example, from the 18th century. And in many ways, it's it's a similar process that war wars of independence throughout the Americas have that similarity, that language of being, uh, of losing their parent, their parental mm-hmm. figure, and having to grow into their own, not just ad- from their adolescence, but to mature as adults and become independent nations. So what's interesting then in that history is that if Mexico is a patria, what he says that we have to turn to, and then when I say we, I mean Texas Mexicans, uh, he says what they have to turn to is to the Republic, to mm-hmm. the Republic of Texas. And so what's curious there is that Texas emerges as La Republica, the new the Texas and the United States, really. It's the, Texas as a state and, and the United States is a, is a republic to which the Texas Mexicans should turn to mm-hmm. as a new sort of source of authority and where they should begin to invest political and emotional energy in. But what we know, though, is that patria is the one that resonates much more emotionally, right? Historically, it's a term that goes back to the Latin that has not, that even in terms of the word itself, has changed very, very little, patria itself. Republic is a much more, uh, is a, has fluctuated much more and doesn't carry as much of the emotional weight. So even in the narrative itself, Navarro is at is at pains literally to di- to shift the, the the emotional energy of belonging to Mexico, and he wants his um, uh, readerships, his uh, Spanish speaking readership, to imagining belonging to the Republic of the United States. Mm-hmm. But even his language itself shows that it's still not quite there. 
the republic itself might offer political hope possibilities, but emotionally it doesn't carry that that language that weight yet. Right. right. Uh, and so this document then it was rep- it was pre- uh, printed in newspapers and then it was reprinted as a standalone book um, uh, later in the 1850s. Um, we don't know much about the circulation. That's a difficulty about this moment. Um, the moment about a racial, the the real insidious racialization that that had already developed from before, but that cements in Texas and comes along with colonization, and by colonization meaning the dispossession of of uh, uh, of, uh, of Texas Mexicans uh, of the of the elite, right? The elite, the ones who would have had the tools and the language to be able to protect um, other people in their own communities from from the English speaking or the Ang- uh, Anglo's. Um, they're dispossessed, and so, and so th- these newspapers are really powerful. It's really sort of a, a last gasp of the community as a whole, really, right. of being able to speak back publicly. That is. Right, right. Particularly at this moment, as you explained, through intensive, um, you know, marginalization and, and racialization, where Texas itself has become very deeply segregated, right? Post, uh, you know, uh, U.S. annexation, uh, as you mentioned, mostly the, the Tejanos and the Texas Mexicans are along, you know, the south of Texas, right? Uh, the east is predominantly Anglo-American uh, migrations from the south, right? I think um, I mentioned that the, the central portion of Texas is also inhabited by, by German immigrants. So there's intense, um, there's both uh, an intense amount of segregation, but also just social and political marginalization that's occurring at this time. And uh, I believe, as, as I take from this, that the, the, the emergence of a Spanish, you know, American press, Tejano press, is, you know, the attempts to claim agency, right, Take a, have a voice, right, in these debates, right, uh, about the future and the direction uh, of, of Texas and its place within, you know, these, these shifting national, uh, you know, boundaries and allegiances. Right. I mean, I think one of the things that's quite telling is that in one of these last newspapers that I write about from El Correo from San Antonio from 1858, it's one of the last newspapers from San Antonio um, uh, of this period. We don't get other newspapers until the later 19th century in, in San Antonio, at, at least, that exist uh, that we know of. There's been there's mentions of some newspapers, but we've not been able to find them. From this newspaper from 1858, for example, the editor um, – um, lambast the the state legislature for refusing to allocate funds to translate laws into Spanish, and mm-hmm. not only that, but also to not provide funding for bilingual education, right? And the editor mm-hmm. says that without bilingual education, and so here, what's also important to note is that, as you as you mentioned, um, is that the community here by now is not just Spanish speaking, but it's also there's a significant uh, German, uh, but also a French community, and there were some alliances between some of the Germans and French and the and the elites, um, Tejanos. Um, many of the Germans and, and the French who had immigrated to Texas had come to Texas from um, after the failed uh, revolutions of, of Europe of '48, and so many of them were liberal. That's another story where many of these liberals. Uh, one liberal German uh, editor, for example, a newspaper editor, had to flee Texas because he was uh, uh, an abolitionist, and it was just impossible to be in Texas and, and, and to be an ab- abolitionist. So this newspaper, for example, to go back to the Correo from 1858, criticizes you know the legislature for not providing um, funding for bilingual education and says, right. with bilingual education, we will not be able to educate our children, and our community will not be able to sustain itself. And that's it's 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 quite. Um, 
it, it's it's a really it's an incredibly melancholic um, story. Um, it's one that we know of that resonates even to the present today. Gotcha. Thank you. Um, I know our time is short. I appreciate you you taking this this time to really go through uh, the book and um, these different narrative strands and ideas that you present and explain here. Um, so I'm going to have two I have two more questions. And the the first one is I want you then to um, discuss how uh, you know a lot of this again is taking place in in, in Texas, um, but it's referred to as a a Latino history, right? So can you expand on that and particularly your use of you know the the term Latino. What what is it? What makes this then a, a Latino history, um, particularly you know uh, within all the different you know descriptors have been used to try to discuss uh, the whether it's the Hispanic, right, Spanish American, Mexican American, the population that existed in in this region. Right. I mean, so um, if to take a meta kind of perspective on this, we all know that. When people write histories, histories are are not just about the past, but they're about our present, right? Mm-hmm. Right. Uh, we we know this from the philosophers of history, so that's another field that I, I work in. We know that history emerges as a way to imagine who we are today as a, as a community, right. and so this history is written very much in that in that way for thinking about uh, our the Latino community um, in the U.S. today. Um, so um, the terms that we've used, so Americanos, they use Isleños, they use Tejano, Texas Mexican, um, all these various terms, they're all in flux. They're all moving and they're used for various different purposes. I think for me, I go back to that idea, that sense of that concentric way of belonging. So for me, um, in an essay that, that's coming out in uh, the um, Latino Cities Keywords book published by NYU, I wrote, I wrote an essay on nationalism. Question I ask is, you know, is nationalism, is a nation the only way we have to imagine um, belonging to a community? Mm-hmm. Is, is, that is, will, will it always be based on, you know, being Mexicano or Chicano? Um, will it be about being Puerto Rican or Cubano or Dominicano? And that's a question that I have that this book raises for communities here in the United States, for Latino communities in the United States. The people that circulate here in this book, many of them were uh, would have identified as criollos, as españoles. Right. They never identified even as Mexicano, perhaps, or Americano. And yet I put them all in there um, under that term. And I think Latino does, in many ways, um, what, what I described before as that sense of concentric belonging. And I think Latino, if we can use Latino as a placeholder for imagining this complex, complex tortured. I don't, I don't want to present this alternative history as being the, some kind of, uh, um, idealistic kind of world. The other text that, that I don't write about in this book, um, are, of course, the violent process of mestizaje for many of these people, for people who do become Mexicano. When I say become Mexicano, I mean the violent process in which indigenous peoples who were part of some of these missions or who were not part of the missions, who then are um, um, incorporated into these colonies, into Spanish colonies, or later once Texas becomes part of the U.S., and it becomes all-out genocide for various for all the various Native nations in Texas, one wonders to what extent some of these Native American peoples, in order to escape genocide after U.S. the after U.S. annexation, would have tried to pass as Mexicano, for example. That's an incredibly painful, difficult history that we still don't know. Uh, so I don't, I don't want to ignore that. I want right, to say that right. still very much part of this. But I want to say that maybe if we can begin to imagine 
this larger history as as one in which these ideas and so here I'm thinking about intellectual history of how we imagine ourselves as belonging the affective uh, aspect of this community by affect I mean like how people are moved like in order for people to do something they first have to f- be persuaded and to feel something so I I, I want to say that maybe Latino can do that for us for today and I think that many people are advocating right that that Latino can be a way to imagine us from all our disparate national origins as belonging perhaps are also to this other larger community so I'd like to say that we have maybe um, a sense of nesting stories that we have to tell mm-hmm. our full histories, our national histories, but then also this la- our other larger history of belonging as Latinos within the United States. Yeah, thanks for that. That's, that's a great point. Um, so lastly, I just wanted to give you an opportunity to, we spent a lot of time talking, <laughs> discussing this book that was published essentially almost four years ago, or about four years ago. Uh, great book. It's been, like, as I mentioned, it's been winning awards ever since. But obviously, you're working on something new. So can you tell us a, a bit about what is it you're, you're currently working on? What projects are you going on? I'm working on now is a history of individualism in the Latino world. That is, we know, and when, and when I say that, for those who work with an intellectual history, broader intellectual history, you know, we know the history of individual individualism within the Protestant world. C.B. McPherson, for example, his classic book, Possessive Individualism. Um, you know, it, it's it's a history of a political philosophy, but also moral philosophy, the various contours in, in, in which the concept of individualism emerges. So the, the idea that I have a body, that the ideas inside my head are my own, mm. that the emotions that I feel are something that are contained within my body and that are, don't come from outside, that all has a history. We know that within the history, within intellectual history. Right. But we know that history, again, for more of the Protestant North Atlantic world. A lot of literature has been done in both Anglo-American and continental intellectual history for thinking about the concepts of individualism, individualism, and that history of knowing about individualism has allowed us to then uh, develop ideas of concepts of gender and of sexuality. But we don't know that much then about this world, again, right, Right. of the Catholic world. So what I'm most interested in is when people begin to carve out. So what the, the concept that I said that emerges in my book for this period, uh, when I refer to rights, is a concept of the pueblo. So maybe we can have this kind of like a tension between the binary um, of the community versus the individual. When does the when does the individual begin to sort of sort of distill from outside of the pueblo? Mm-hmm. And when does the individual begin to have a sense of interiority? And when I reference that, when I say that, what I'm referencing actually is within the field of literary history, we know that the rise of the novel, and here not just literary history, but also um, social intellectual history, the, the, to the moment when late scholasticism begins to collapse. So I really, I'll begin with that moment of the collapse of late scholasticism and the development of this eclectic um, philosophy, what they describe as eclectic philosophy. Then I'll trace it through the rise of the novel in in Spanish America, Um, but really engaging much more with moral philosophy is what I would say versus political philosophy. Gotcha. Well, thanks for that. And, uh, you know, it's been great speaking with you today. Thanks again for taking the time to discuss your your book, A World Not to Come. I appreciate it so much. Thanks for having me. 
Thank you for tuning in to New Books in Latino Studies. I'm David James Gonzalez, the host of the podcast, and I hope you've enjoyed my conversation today with Raul Coronado, author of A World Not to Come, a history of Latino writing and print culture, published by Harvard University Press in 2013. I invite you to rate and comment on this podcast on iTunes, wherever else you uh, track and receive your podcast episodes. Also, make sure to follow the New Books Network on Facebook and Twitter to be aware of upcoming episodes as soon as they are published. Thank you.